0: following program was made possible by Ward's lawyers. Find us at wardlegal.ca.
1: It didn't matter who he was and what he looked like. He made a go of it and the community accepted him and he accepted everybody else. It just created that culture of acceptance.
2: Julia Taylor, who is still coming to grips with the passing of a very special and important person in Fenland Falls and beyond. Julia joins us later to tell us of the lasting legacy of trailblazer, Randy Meredith. Post-secondary students are back on campus, for real this time, not virtually, but not all universities are following the same COVID protocols. We reached Madeline McCall at her school to describe how she's negotiating some pretty strict rules when compared to other institutions. The Sheila Boyd Gallery in Bob Cajun is celebrating First People with an exhibit called Celebrating First Peoples. We were there for its launch, which, as well as featuring some wonderful visual art, also included some great sounds and voices. We also hear how and when to involve the law when resolving that contractor-client dispute. That comes to us courtesy of lawyer Calvin Chan. My name is Denis Grignot, and this is the Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes. The community of Fenland Falls is feeling a void. One left by the recent passing of Randy Scott Meredith, the owner of Great Finds. That is the eclectic and kind of electric store of antiques and memorabilia and cool knickknacks on Fenland's main street. Now, the term bigger than life is very often used when someone is memorialized after their death, and and sometimes we politely respect that description, even if it's not necessarily one we'd attribute to them. But with Randy, all you have to do is see that image of him wearing the bright red plaid suit or have had the chance to meet and speak with him, and bigger than life is fitting. Randy's passing is also being mourned by the LGBTQ community, which has also lost a proud and advocating voice, especially in Fenland Falls. Julia Taylor is a business neighbor and was a friend of Randy's. She owns the country cupboard in Fenland Falls. That's where we've reached her. Julia, I'm sorry for your loss. How are you grappling with Randy being gone?
1: Yeah. So I'm still, um, in denial mode. I don't know that it will kick in for me until I stop seeing him as much, you know, once I start to miss him and, um, I'm on standby, uh, you know, to be a support for the, the inner circle of his, the people that were closest to him. So I've got my, Denial and brave face on to be there for them and help them through this.
2: What was your reaction when, when you first learned of the news?
1: Oh, yeah. Shocked. Um, probably let out a, a big swear, you know, um, and then immediate um, sorrow for for his closest people and and just touch and base with them. And, yeah, shock is totally unexpected. Not the news we wanted this week.
2: Well, let's look at a brighter moment. Tell me about the first time you met him. What was that like? What were your impressions of him?
1: A regular raspberry in a cup guy. So we, so he was always a, a customer here, and uh, of course, I'd been through the shop before. So uh, although I can't remember our first interaction, I certainly um, certainly have uh, great, great memories of him and a great image of his warm smile uh, stuck in my my head. Bigger than life, you know, uh, a character. Uh, unique cool fun warm character you know I think as shop owners we we have many interactions in a day and um for me for me personally at my shop they're always very warm and so uh yeah so and so hanging out with Randy outside of the the store was always fun uh more on a personal level uh we're always uh up to uh, cool things when when i was with him and
2: his crew can you give me an example
1: uh the last time we hung out we went to um don't know what it was called it was at abbey gardens or just at, at that neck of the woods right close to them on that street uh it was like cirque du soleil with witches and fire and so it was it was really special that it seems- was, you know, out in the open field in the night in the stars and uh, witches with fire and choreographed dancing and aerobatics. So, yeah.
2: Seems like the kind of place he would feel completely at home. Mm, yeah. Mm. What was his contribution to fenland And I'm not just talking about like, the business strip, but but the community itself.
1: I think he created a culture of acceptance, you know, so you've got this cool, eclectic, one-of-a-kind store with beautiful front windows um really creative and you know all those words describe randy uh he's been out there for over a decade seven days a week sweeping putting his stuff out sitting out front giving a warm welcome to people on their daily walks it didn't matter who he was and what he looked like he you know he he made a go of it and the community accepted him and he accepted everybody else and it just created that that culture of acceptance within the business community and the downtown core uh, in fenlon falls and that really was um, you know set in stone after you know some people came in and were threatening them and uh and the community showed up like oh no we don't tolerate this in our community you know, so I think that just cemented that, that this is, Finland has a culture of acceptance and, and caring and, and love. He brought that, if you ask me. And, you know, so the other big part of Randy was that he um, he was representation for so many people and youth especially, but not just limited to that. Like I, I've heard from men in their 60s that came out just to themselves even because, because they saw him. And representation is so important for the youth when they're discovering who they are and they can see him and say, well, he's cool and he's different and he's unique and he dates men and I can be that way too. And my community will love me and I can have a business and do cool things, even though I feel like maybe I don't know if that's okay for me to be this way right now. You know. So I think those were the two biggest things, that culture of acceptance and that representation for the youth. Representation for everybody. I shouldn't just say youth because I know it went far beyond that.
2: As someone from Fenland, what does that mean to you, Julia, to have that door swung open now, even even maybe not fully open, but open, much more open than it was before?
1: I cannot imagine um, this community without without that. I mean, I remember my first few months in business. It was my first time owning a retail business, and I put a, fri- a pride flag up, and I had some negative reactions and i you know could have taken the pride flag down and kind of apologized because how did i know how that was going to affect my business it was my first few months i don't know and i said no i'm leaving it up all year and i don't want people like that in my store and i don't care to communicate with them in my in my community and i don't know if i would have had the bravery to do that had we not already had that that culture of acceptance um so it means a lot to me I I really can't imagine Fenlon Falls without that vibe
2: and he's very much responsible for having created it
1: uh in my opinion yeah I mean he's a huge part of that there's certainly other elements of Fenlon Falls that uh that procure that but yeah I mean he's a huge part of that
2: how will you feel going into that store now grateful
1: I maybe because it's still in denial I'm still in denial but I don't Uh, I don't think Randy's gone I don't think his work is done here and I think it will carry on I think the business will carry on exactly the way it is and that, that vibe will carry on and even if the store didn't go on that will still that culture will still be here so
2: that's his legacy
1: yeah definitely
2: Julia thanks for this
1: yeah thanks Denise
2: A celebration of life for Randy Meredith takes place this coming Sunday, September 18, at the Grove Theatre in Fenland Falls. Gates open at 6 p.m. The ceremony is scheduled to start at 7 p.m. Anyone who's had to hire a contractor at some point, whether it be for a simple renovation or a full turnkey house build, will likely have at least one anecdote of a frustrating occurrence during that process, something that didn't exactly go according to plan. In the perfect world, dispute between client and contractor can be resolved easily, quickly, without involving a legal team. Well, that's the perfect world, not necessarily the real world. Sometimes to navigate through these troubled waters, there's a need for...
1: words of wisdom. More than just words of wisdom, it's wards of wisdom. Wards of wisdom. I'm in
2: the wards lawyer's offices on Kent Street in Lindsay. At the other end of the table is lawyer Calvin Chan, who has some experience with the aforementioned client-contractor dispute. Hey, Calvin, thanks for making time for us again. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm going to share an anecdote here that happened just this morning, coincidentally. It, uh, it involved my contractor, and it went well, so let me just say that off the bat. He did a little bit of work for us, and I called him up and said, mm-hmm. look, there's just a tiny little thing here that has to be done, uh, just some caulking along an edge of a floor, and I barely had the words out of my mouth, and he said, yeah, no problem. I, you know, I figured that might happen as the floor settles. I'll yeah. come by later this week, and I'll repair it. If he had said, mm, too bad, you know, what could my recourse be in something like that?
3: breach of contract because you contracted with this uh, contractor for a new floor and you'd have to express why it is that that floor was not done correctly. And that would be just a simple breach of contract case. In this instance, the project's already done, has already been paid. So, you know, similar to buying a, a car that was a lemon, you would have to assert breach of contract in some way. And that would likely go through small claims court but that part kind of plays into my my general view and commentary on the construction industry which is there's no greater industry where deals are done on on a handshake basis. Well, I was going to lead into that yeah. because this is someone I have a great relationship
2: with and I just want to cuz he's listening right now but but even aside from that so it's largely been just a handshake kind of yeah. deal and in a smaller community, as you can appreciate, these are people we're gonna bump into in the store yeah. the next so day. What,
3: what I've done is I've jumped straight to the legal the legal solution that you or somebody in that situation would have. Oftentimes that doesn't arise because saying that, you know, you're gonna take someone to court, you're going to take legal action, that's enough of a of a of a push. For a contractor to say, okay, well, we'll we'll fix an issue like that. You're talking about where the floor settles. That's fairly common. So, a contractor generally has has to protect their own reputation. You know, they've, there's there's contractors around around town that'll do anything. So, you know, it's a competitive industry, and most of these issues do get resolved. It's really the the five percent of issues that don't get resolved is when when people start to. Uh, think, well, I'm going to need a lawyer, and, and what am I going to do here? And, and step one for, for a case like that might be small claims court, might be a, uh, a letter demanding payment um, leading to small claims court, uh, but depending on the size of the contract, it might be uh, a superior court action for you know over $35,000 up to you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the, on the contract. In the case of a, a new home build, it might be a review by Terion Warranty Company. So there's lots of different options. What I'm sorry,
2: what is the Terion Review Company? Is that like an independent yeah. body that, that yes. kind of sits as an arbitrator? So, so
3: that is a that's a warranty company that basically warrants the c- construction of new homes in Ontario. And most people that build um, that buy a new subdivision home will, you know, that's already baked into their contract. The average person may not know that mm-hmm. may not know that they have the right to ask on to do an, an inspection if you are aren't the owner in in, in which case you're a contractor then there's lean entitlements that we have to talk about so that process for them looks different so it is actually fairly
2: complicated it sounds complicated and I, and I just wonder if it becomes more complicated because the two parties thought it wouldn't be complicated we don't need a contract so of the situations that you're helping to resolve how often was there nothing written down? And now it's just a lot of he said, he said, she said, she said.
3: Very often. It does turn into a nightmare for the lawyers, but that's that's the that's the reality of a construction project. Things do change. Uh, change orders are not always signed and agreed upon. When things change, there will be delays, and sometimes those delays are discussed, sometimes they aren't. Unfortunately, we live in Canada and Ontario of all places. Sometimes those bleed into wintertime. There's any number of factors that could go wrong. Homeowners and contractors will view them differently. What are the more nebulous ones? The and I know we use the example of "Eh, the work didn't meet my standards. Well, it's interesting that you say that it's tangible that that one is a tangible one not meeting a deadline. But the question then becomes how do you quantify that into damages? So that does turn into an issue that often is disputed. Those issues can be worked out and those that's one that we, we encounter pretty often. Let's say you're the owner, it never turns into you're going to get a full refund versus um, the con- on the contractor side doesn't turn into, well, you know, it let's bygones be bygones and, <laughs> and the delay doesn't mean anything. You know, usually there's some sort of compromise in the middle. The prime issues that we deal with often have to do with delay, workmanship improper installation well not, well that in, if we're looking at
2: those things didn't didn't meet expectations didn't meet standards how is that determined will the
3: courts bring in like a third party to say all right you take a look at it what do you think that's an interesting one because the the parties have to bear that cost most of the time depending on who's making the claim those are all things to be determined in the in the context of a of a lawsuit, whether or not that, that expert evidence, let's say third party expert evidence on whether a project was done correctly, whether or not that will be accepted is is also another question by a judge. It's usually unreasonable for either the owner or the contractor or subcontractor to expect uh, a total victory just because of the complication on, on, on how these these projects are, how, how complicated these projects are. So let me give you an example. You know, if a, if a contractor says, well, I finished the project, but they didn't pay me. Usually what I will, I will say was, okay, why, why aren't they paying you? Usually, People are pretty reasonable. There's usually at least a reason why they didn't pay you. There may be some deficiencies there where in the project, they're not warranted to be paid the full price. On the other hand, if you're an owner and you're saying the project wasn't done correctly, so I'm just not gonna pay them the hold back. You have to be able to quantify what, what exactly did, did these deficiencies cost you? Who tends to be more victorious in these cases? I I would say it's rare for a full victory on both sides. In my experience, in our experience, it's just, it's a very difficult process to work through itemized deficiencies. Parties should know that before they decide, I'm not going to pay or take really drastic action to say, I'm walking away from this project. It's not easy to tell who is, where the project has gone wrong in a lot of these cases because because it's such a drawn
2: out process
3: too literally
2: a drawn out process where you know you're removing a floor you're putting in a floor you're adjusting the floor and
3: yeah and it's not it's not um you know not every construction project is building the air canada center where contracts are drawn up and carefully scrutinized in your home construction project you you do meet with a contractor once or twice and you have a handshake
2: what do you tell that person then calvin let's say i come to you and say hey i'm doing some renovation work It's a good friend of mine who's a contractor. It's a handshake deal, we're fine. How do you convince somebody like me that you know you might wanna lay out uh, a
3: schedule and a contract here? I would just inform them of the cost of it, the cost of whatever goes wrong, what it's gonna cost to possibly enforce. There's the contract you think you have verbally and as a handshake deal, and then there's the contract that's down in writing. What I would say to perhaps a homeowner Uh, Who is saying I'm not gonna pay my contractor, then I'd have to say to them you better be ready to have a lien slapped on your house (laughs) And I'm not sure that 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 may give them some pause on how they wish to approach Uh, As soon as something starts to go wrong You may want to consider consulting a lawyer and and seeing you know, what are your options? What are the costs here and what can we do better on this project? Mm -hmm. uh, In terms of papering it keeping it uh, formalized and well-documented there's been a, a need that the Ontario government has sought to address here because of how complicated these, these construction disputes become. So there is something new that's been implemented in the past two years called the prompt payment regime, which is something that is an alternative to going to court. It's an instance where, or it's a regime where a, a contractor can, uh, will issue invoices at regular intervals, usually once per month, and if that invoice gets disputed for some reason, let's say there's a delay, let's say there's, um, let's say one part of the project wasn't supplied correctly, um, then the invoice can be disputed by the owner. And then that gets resolved in an in a, in abbreviated fashion, in a summary fashion, not by the courts, by a neutral third party construction authority. This is a way for you to handle the project and manage the project while it's going on rather than having a project slowly steer into the iceberg (laughs) until it's too late and you end up in court.
2: Calvin Chan is a lawyer with Ward's Lawyers in Lindsay, official sponsor of our program. To reach Calvin Chan or anyone on Carissa Ward's team and learn how they can meet all your legal needs, visit them at wardlegal.ca. Our show is 100% local media, just like our parent, The Advocate magazine. The September issue of the magazine includes a comprehensive feature by associate editor Nancy Payne on how growth, especially when it comes to new builds, often means transforming farmland. You can pick up your copy across Kawartha Lakes, including Butter Tarts and More in Little Britain and the Lindsay Square Mall. You can reach our show by going to the Advocate Podcast Facebook or Twitter pages, and please consider subscribing for free on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or on the Podbean app. And rate us. That helps others find our show. In our last episode, you'll recall our conversation with Wes Hahn, Director of Education for our local public school board and how the school board was following guidelines as set out by the province. Well, for Ontario universities, however, the rules are a bit more, let's say, fluid. Some universities, for instance, don't require masking or vaccination for students or staff, while others require some version of one of those mandates. And then there's the University of Western Ontario. The post-secondary institution in London made headlines recently with a mandate that includes at least one booster shot of the vaccine, as well as masking in class for everyone. Supporters of the mandates, strict compared to other universities, say it's responsible public health. Critics call it excessive and unnecessary. Madeline McCall is from Omini, but right now she's in London as a media and the public interest student at Western. She's also a member of the Gazette. That is her university's newspaper. That's where she is right now. Madeline, thanks for coming on to the program.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on.
2: Hey, William, I want to hear your perspective because you've had a few days now on campus just walking like through the halls and and outside. What's the mood like?
4: Yes. So it's very interesting, actually. Uh, The first day I came onto campus, I was doing uh, training for my job and I was fully expecting to have to be fully masked the whole time because that's what... I first got out of the email that uh, said we would have to wear masks in instructional spaces and in, we'd also have to have a booster shot by a certain date. Um, and I have my one booster, um, but I walked into the building fully masked and then I realized that most other people weren't. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, So it turns out that when they say instructional spaces, this means the classroom and labs from what I understand. So at my job, I don't have to wear one walking around campus, you don't have to wear one walking around buildings outside of the classroom, you don't have to wear one from what I understand. Um, So I was a bit surprised because that's not what I expected I thought we were going to have to have them. all the time
2: you qualified it by saying from what i understand and my sense is that a lot of people are still trying to figure it out what's your sense of everyone there
4: it is very confusing i'm still trying to figure out the logic of it because i'm i'm all for masks if i'm required to wear one i'm totally good to do that i just can't seem to find the logic in okay i'm going to stand outside with these people and they don't have to wear a mask but then as soon as we enter the classroom we do I feel like if we're gonna do it, make everyone wear masks as opposed to just doing here and there, here and there, and making people more confused.
2: When you say here and there, you mean like outside, like literally physically outside the building? You don't have to wear masks or you're talking about outside in the halls?
4: um, So they're still unclear about that. That's another thing is they really, I I have a friend who um, is currently putting up signage to try and show like where masks are required and where it's not. Yeah, it's very, it's patchy. There's not a lot of
2: certainty. (laughs) How are you dealing with, with that? Just that, uh, I, I don't know, stress is the right word, but certainly the confusion of just trying to, to figure everything out and, and you haven't even been in class yet. What's that like, dealing with that?
4: It's just, it is, I think stressful is a good word, especially for certain students who may be immunocompromised. I myself am fortunate that I'm not, yeah, I, I don't mind wearing a mask, truthfully. I think I'm totally fine in class. Honestly, after a few hours, you don't even, personally, I don't really notice it's there. Uh, but yeah, just kind of, that additional step of I kind of have to scope out the room and the vibe of the room before I go in and be like, okay, do I have to wear it here? Do I have to wear it there? Um, so it's just an extra step where you have to kind of think about it a bit.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess that even within your your circle of contemporaries and classmates and friends, that this is a somewhat uh, divisive issue. So how are those two camps negotiating and managing this and, and being together physically?
4: We had a student group from Western, it's called on Instagram, it's called students fours and the number four agency, they came together and basically opposed the mandates. Yeah, their, their slogan is enough is enough Western. Shortly after there was a protest on campus, I think a bit more than 400 students and other community members, I'm sure attended that. Personally, I haven't met anyone or had any disagreements or haven't witnessed anybody opposing it. Uh, face-to-face but it's kind of that underlying tension of when you meet somebody you don't know their stance so it can be frustrating I'm kind of of the mindset at this point that um, I will wear one I'll I'll read the room and then if someone would like me to wear a mask to them that's absolutely no problem but yeah it it is kind of difficult to navigate that conversation sometimes because you know you don't like to argue with your friends about that kind of thing also with the logic that Western has in terms of like no one can actually figure out these set rules. It's kind of hard to argue a point on campus because we don't know where they have to wear them yet. We just know instructional spaces and everywhere else is kind of all over the place.
2: The university is in a unique position. As I mentioned off the top in the introduction, you're really the only university that has gone this far, be it for the greater good or whether it's uh, that word overreach. How has this changed your relationship with the university and and your student experience there?
4: Truthfully, uh, this didn't really surprise me that Western would kind of be unclear, to be honest with you, because in previous years, while I do really enjoy this university and I'm thankful for the time I've had here, I think communication is a big issue at Western University because if you're gonna make a mandate like that, you have to be very clear. And I also think it was very unfair how late they announced it. Because even though I was boosted and I was ready to wear a mask, if some people weren't, then that is unfair to them to have to. And that was also a pretty close time to where people were paying tuition, interestingly enough. Like I had already paid part of my tuition after that, before that announcement came out. So I think if they're going to take a stance on it, something I would like Western University to do is just be more clear and stick to their stance. Because as soon as they get wish-washy, that leaves more room for people to... You know, people are always allowed to oppose and have their own opinion, but if they're going to be wish-washy, that just kind of breaks down the foundation for the argument that they're trying to pose. At a certain point, they have to take a stance because I think people start to lose respect. It's tricky because on one hand, you want to listen to your student body and kind of adjust based on the feedback, but at the same point in time, yeah. the communication is not there to support that.
2: This is your final year, Madeline, at the university. This, this is what's going to wrap it all up. How do you think you're going to look back on on this time and, and, and your, your time at the university?
4: My year is kind of an interesting one because we started in person. We, we started in 2019 when everything was quote unquote normal. And then second semester, everything hit lockdown. Second year, I was basically on line all year. And third year was a bit of a hybrid year. We kind of went back and forth, back and forth the word that they use to describe us a lot is resilient and uh oh you'll be able to transfer these skills and everything which we will and it is good skill to have but when I look back on my time here the most positive memories are the ones where I'm in person and interacting with people and having that human connection zoom it isn't for me I know we had to do it and I'm I totally understand why but the most positive memories for me have been with that in-person connection so if masking and boosting is what we have to do to keep that i'm all for it
2: well thank you for doing this zoom conversation madeline
4: (laughs) i did enjoy this zoom one My name is Madeline McCall of Omimi, Ontario, currently attending the University of Western Ontario. And you're listening to The Advocate Podcast, stories from Cawortha Lakes.
2: On now until the end of this month at the Sheila Boyd Gallery inside the Bob Cajun Library. An art exhibit that will move you. Celebrating First Peoples showcases the work of local and national Indigenous artists. Some of the art does evoke the painful history suffered by Canada's First Nations, but among the 30 or so pieces, some celebrations as well. The installation was coordinated by Truth and Reconciliation Bob Cajun, leading up to our country's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which will again be marked with a ceremony at the Boyd Museum in Bob Cajun. You may remember the report our show brought you last year about that event. You can go through our archives to listen to it again, of course. I was at the launch of this art exhibit. It included an address by Chief Keith Knott of Curve Lake and music by Curve Lake First Nation singer and designer Brittany Taylor.
0: Celebrating First Peoples. So yeah, look around at the great art, and uh, I'm Rodney Smith-Merkley, I'm a co-keeper of the Bob Cajun Truth and Reconciliation Committee, and right now I get to celebrate another uh, beautiful Anishinaabe Kwe, Brittany Taylor, and Brittany's going to sing for us, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about... This song um,
4: is the song of the Wanderer, and it's kind of fitting for me, kind of where I am in my life, and
0: yeah,
5: I'm, I'm just glad that I wandered where I meant to be. Away, Away, I can say a little prayer. Because I'm a little, a little, i
0: We gather in a good way on uh, this sacred land, um, Bob Cajun, Bob Cajuan at the shallow rapids between Sturgeon and Pigeon Lakes, which of course is the Chisagi territory from the beginning, from time immemorial. and this was our traditional territory as well. Absolutely. So one of the people I'm thinking about is uh, Gidega Miggazay Bun, Doug Williams Bunn, who, who shared lots of knowledge in this very room with us over the years. Wanted to read from his book uh, about the 1818 treaty. Doug Bunn writes, uh, the treaty is remembered by story by my elders and it's important, I think, to put down on paper what they remembered because the treaty of 1818 is the beginning of many deceitful activities by the government against the Michisagi Anishinaabeg. The reason I say that is because the old people remember that they kept many of those things that would help them live on the land and sustain their way of life forever.
5: Not. my clan is the eagle clan and the bear clan my great grandfather was a chief of the eagle of the bear clan i feel so blessed you know the creator has given me all this here i think energy and the uh, comfort that i have and when my my wife passed we were married for almost 62 years we first met in 1955 and got married in nineteen fifty-eight. So it wasn't a gunshot wedding. <laughs> we we took our time as we tested the water. You know, just like your your lake up here. It gets rough every once once in a while. But be patient. It'll it'll calm over again. And that's what marriage is all
0: about. <laughs> 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 we had our
5: rough waves sometimes. But you know you remember what you said, <clears throat> the bow that you took. No matter what, the water's all calm at one time.
0: Yes,
5: it's beautiful to see all the uh, artwork around here. The talent the uh, First Peoples have. They've always had that talent. You, know, they, you can look at the petroglyphs. The talent was there, the messages that were given. You know, it's really, really uh, eye-opening. And, but some of these talents that we have, we weren't able to bring them up at one time. Uh. something. A good friend of mine, his name was Gordon Wenebys. He was an elder. He was such a beautiful, nice gentleman, you know, and he wrote something here. Creator placed the Anishinaabe on Earth, along with the gift of spirituality. Here on Mother Earth, there were gifts given to the Anishinaabe to look after which is fire, water, earth, and wind. The Creator also gave the Anishinaabe seven sacred gifts to guide them. They are love, truth, respect, wisdom, humility, honesty, and bravery. Creator gave us sovereignty to govern ourselves. We respect and honor the past, present and the future. You listen to that and you and you realize on who we are as a people. The creator created us. Hi-oh.
2: Celebrating First Peoples is an art exhibit on now until the end of the month at the Sheila Boyd Gallery in Bob Cajun. A few other events this month presented by Truth and Reconciliation Bob Cajun. September 22, that's when you can take part in a blanket exercise at the Trinity United Church in Bob Cajun. September 30, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on the grounds of the Boyd Museum. And this Saturday, September 17, the Curve Lake Pow Wow is back, where you can see Brittany Taylor's work via her Wildwood studio. We now have 63 episodes under our belt, thanks to our exclusive sponsor for each and every one of those, Ward's Lawyers. They have you covered, no matter your legal needs. Contact the team, led by Carissa Ward, at wardlegal.ca. Gerald Van and he's the fellow who wrote and performs the musical themes and bridges on our program. The Advocate Podcast Stories from Kawartha Lakes is written, produced, and hosted by some guy called Denis Gringel, who you may see at the Lindsay Fair, which is coming up. Be safe, be kind, be patient, be optimistic. We're back in two weeks.